I wanted to see Kepka and, and uh, Dustin Johnson paired together. Yeah. I thought that would have been a perfect pairing. It didn't happen for the first three sessions, and it finally did for Saturday afternoon four ball. Sure enough, they go up against Rory and Peters, the Europeans' hottest team. I go back to 9T, and I'm, I sit on a bench that's kind of far away from the tee box, maybe 30 feet away, 25 feet, and Rory and Peters tee off, and Rory just comes over and plops down on the bench next to me. And I mean, I'm trying to play. I'm playing it cool. Like, yeah, okay, this, this is cool. This totally happens. And then he points at DJ and Kepka, and he's three up on them at this point, and rubs it in my face that this is the pairing I wanted, points at the two of them and says, well, you got your wish. You wanted this pairing, and I'm going to rub it in your face during the middle of the Ryder Cup. Yeah. I mean, it was it was hilarious. I loved every second of it. I was like, consider dropping the U.S. right then and there and starting rooting for <laughs> Europe because it was so hilarious to me. Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I'm your host, Sean Zock, and the Ryder Cup buzz is finally settling down, sort of. Anyway, I was at Hazeltine all last week. It's an incredible event. Fans going bonkers, celebrities inside the ropes, absolutely incredible play from the golfers, etc. It's one of those events in sports you truly cannot understand until you experience it firsthand. That's why I'm happy to welcome in Chris Solomon from No Laying Up. Chris experienced the Ryder Cup as a media member for the first time, working for SB Nation all last week. He also jetted out of there just in time to return to his second life in Amsterdam. Chris, are you still jet lagged? I slept about 11 hours last night. I landed at, uh, let's see, about 6.30 Tuesday morning. Had to come home, shower, go right to work. Basically no sleep on the plane. So made it until 8.30 p.m. uh, last night before going to sleep and did not open my eyes until like 7 the next morning. So uh, still feeling it a little bit, actually, even after all that sleep. But, man, it was uh, was a trip well worth it. I knew I was going to have that jet lag coming back, but – and that was the definitely the experience of a lifetime. Yeah, no doubt. It was cool to see you there. I knew that I knew you were going to be there, but I'd actually never met you in person. So I'm sure you were meeting. Were you meeting a bunch of media members and just people the, the entire week you'd never met before? Yeah, that's the, the one of the downsides of living, you know, five thousand miles away. Is I've not a lot of people I interact with even on Twitter or know in the golf world. I've never actually met in person. And there's still people I talk to like on a daily basis that I've never met in person, which is kind of <laughs> kind of funny. But uh, so yeah, it was a lot of. Uh, that's why I found the media center to be quite the unproductive environment because not only is everyone like talking to each other, I like I wanted to talk to other people as well. Uh, so I don't I didn't get nearly as much work done as I would have liked to have. But uh, it was fun to meet a lot of people that I only know through their Twitter avatar for many years. Yeah, well, you did get plenty of work done. I think that you did some stuff on Brooks Kepka and obviously Rory versus Reed. I'm sure that a lot of people took in. We're not done talking Ryder Cup. Chris and I were gonna we're gonna discuss what it's like to be at the Ryder Cup and share some of our best and favorite stories we have from the week. Now I think it would probably be best and most appropriate if we start with the first tee, which I think is absolutely unreal. There's probably no better word to describe it. I don't think the television broadcast can really do it justice much in the way that, you know, going to a bonkers student section at a football game, well uh, the T V can't quite do it justice. We were both there very early on Friday, before dawn, uh, but you were there even earlier than I was. How early did you get there Friday morning? 
I got to the course around six, I think, and then walked over, went to the range a little bit. It was still completely dark as guys were get, as what guys were warming up on the range, and maybe made my way over to the top level of the bleachers where they had a little sub, uh, separate section for the media. About maybe around seven, I'd say, and I mean the music was blasting. People were you know still filing in. I think that. Some people had reserved seats there, but all the unreserved seats were gone like immediately. They open up the gates at six and those things fill up like almost immediately. And people are just fired up, ready to go. And uh, the producers do a good job, too, of like uh, the Golf Channel producers, like when they're coming back from commercial, like pumping everybody up. So everyone gets loud for TV. And uh, the first time they did that, like every hair on my body was standing (laughs) up. I mean, it was it was so loud. Unlike anything you'll ever hear on a golf course ever, and I, I know people know that about the first tee, that it's like the loudest thing, but I mean, the comparison you just made to a college football game, it, it, that's that's what it's like. I mean, you get used to, uh, as the week goes on, you kind of get used to hearing that loud of a noise, and I actually just, I just tweeted a video out that I, that I didn't realize, I, I forgot that I had actually, of Reed walking to the first tee on Sunday, and I didn't just, uh, even captured on my phone, didn't realize how loud it was. Yeah. I mean, it was just deafening. I mean, I've been to some, you know, college football night games at some at some places that get really loud, and it doesn't match this like the sound of you know a hundred thousand people screaming. But as far as you know, gathering, I don't know how many people they had around that tee box and that noise. It was truly something special. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I remember seeing that video, and you, you're above Reed really as he's walking on this cart path, and you can you can anticipate the the roar once he turns the corner and kind of comes up to the first tee. That's one of the things that the TV, all the cameras are a bit removed, actually, from that, that epicenter at times. And, you know, Reed interacts with the fans and gets the, gets the crowd going. One of the, one of the best parts about that first tee, though, is that the group of people that are there, you've got a group of American supporters who are dressed from head to toe, a group of European supporters dressed from head to toe. They're singing songs back and forth at each other. They're singing songs to, to get fans involved. They're singing songs at Tiger, at Ian Poulter. I thought that that was something I, I guess I didn't really know about the Ryder Cup is that you've got these groups of, these groups of dudes who are out there literally from long before dawn that are there singing at each other. Yeah, I think the PGA of America has something to do with getting those guys in the front row, the yeah. group of European guys. I think they were called the Guardians of the Cup, and then the American fans were called the American Marshals. And they had, like, song sheets that, like, they passed out song lyrics, and they were telling people, like, sing this to the tune of, like, Eye of the Tiger or Sweet Caroline and stuff like that, and, like, trying to get chants going and stuff. It was um, it was a bit contrived, I thought. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's cool. It's a cool idea. I just didn't – it. Uh, it didn't catch on as much as I, as much as they, they probably hoped it did. But um, I thought it was so awesome on Sunday. I mean, there's a, there's a fair enough amount of European fans scattered within the gallery, and you yeah. know, on that first tee, like they would try to make their noise. You know, they'd get the Olay chant going, but just almost immediately that would wake the American fans up, and then the USA chants would just come right on top of it. And I keep reverting back to Sunday with Reed, but they got a little like Europe chant going or an Olay in their front row. Reed turns to him before he's even teed off and shushes him. Yeah. Like that just started off this most unbelievably epic day Sunday that I still haven't really recovered from <laughs> as of Wednesday. Now, one thing that was certainly wasn't contrived was the view that we were treated to as media members on Friday morning. I thought it went pretty underappreciated. Actually, the sun is rising through the trees. Uh, there's mist all over the ground and there's so much fog that you can't even see the green. You can't even see the ball really flying well, and you can't see fans off in the distance. You know that they're there. 
I thought that that was underappreciated. It was such a cool setting to see the mist and the fog kind of like emanating from the ground up there at Hazeltine. It just kind of added to the, I don't know if suspense is the right word or the aura, but like I, I was honestly nervous. Like I was thinking <laughs> about how much I was waiting for this moment, like this first tee of the Ryder Cup, the year that I thought the U.S. was going to take back the cup. And I was there the first tee on Friday morning at Medina and was just surprised at the at the level of noise. So I at least knew what to expect this time around. But like and that anticipation just had me honestly like jittery a little bit. And I was just like imagining, picturing, looking at my hand and picturing trying to put a tee in the ground. Oh my gosh. And I don't know if I could have done it. Like I don't know how those guys hit that shot Friday morning because it's kind of cold out. Um, and the, supposedly on the broadcast, they showed Thomas Peters and he looked like he was ready to throw up, <laughs> which obviously he played, played but more than exceeded expectations there. But uh, I mean, the nerves, it's just a palpable real thing. And if I was playing in one of those matches, I would not want to hit that shot. I yeah. would want to be hitting. It's a force of match. I would want to be hitting on the even hole. So I did not have to hit that <laughs> opening tee shot. Yeah, no kidding. I know Spieth in his pre uh, Ryder Cup press conference mentioned that too. He said, you go on the first tee and you've got your ball in your hand, how you always place it in the ground, and your hand is just shaking. And I, I think Brant Snedeker's talked about that in the past. It, it's it's as nervous as these guys can get, which it you know to some people wouldn't make sense. There's no money on the line. It really is all pride, which I guess gets down to maybe the the meat of of their profession is is being better than their opponents. I thought that 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 really stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, you've heard the cliches or the things people always talk about, you know, trying to get to why why this is so different. But it really is you're playing for other people as well. Usually you're just playing for yourself and your family. You're playing for 11 other guys in the locker room, your assistant captain, and then this whole tens of thousands of fans of your team that are counting on you not to let them down. So typically if you let yourself down or if you miss a cut, uh, that's not that big a deal. You kind of, uh, you know, unless you're one of the top players in the game, people just kind of forget about that week and move on. If you are playing like miscut worthy golf in the Ryder <laughs> Cup, you are remembered as as that as that guy for a long time. And um, luckily for the U.S. team, there weren't really any of those guys this week. Uh, but some of the guys on the European team are yeah. got to be feeling it a little bit this week. I would yeah. say Lee Westwood not feeling great about himself. I'm sure Martin Keimer probably wasn't feeling great about himself, especially even even though he won his singles match on Sunday. I wasn't going to call him out by name, but man, you're <laughs> cold-blooded, Sean. Jeez. Well, I mean, if you look at it, those are, I guess the captain's picks, guys, are the guys that are probably, they uh, outside of the guys that you think are your horses on your team, the guys who are captain's picks are most criticized. The microscope on is on them just glaring throughout the most of the week. And those, those two dudes were experienced veterans that they came in as – captain's picks and they really didn't quite play like it i'm i'm happy for darren clark's sake that uh peters at least played well because i took some guts to pick him um i tried to do a little research on this today i didn't get very far because i was actually surprised to see that uh in 2008 if you can't tell how excited i still am about (laughs) the Ryder cup um 2008 hunter mahan was a captain's pick and played all five matches um Mm -hmm. and he was a rookie so I, i was looking for a rookie Ryder cup captain's pick they played all five matches. I thought I wasn't going to find one, but I guess Mahan, he went 2-0-3 in 2008. But, I mean, I just, I, I'm going to use that as an example because if if anybody follows me on Twitter, I'm usually the person pining for the young players. And yeah. I think that you don't need to take experienced players necessarily with captain's picks. Experience doesn't necessarily translate to success in the Ryder Cup. 
So the fact that he, you know, started a young guy that had never been there before, five matches on in uh, in a away Ryder Cup, and he went four and one. Uh, that's incredibly impressive to me, and I think that that conservative example is saying. Look, he almost took Luke Donald over the over Thomas Peters. Like, imagine the disaster for the European team if, if Donald Westwood and Keimer were the picks, and uh, and you know Westwood and Keimer still played as poorly as they did. Yeah. So, um, at least he had that going for him. And I, I I don't think I don't think there's anything Clark could have done to help Europe win. It's not like he passed on really superior players that would have helped them enough to win. So, at least that regard, I don't think I don't think Clark's to blame in that. Yeah, I think if there's any complaint to be made, it might be the qualification process for the European team, yep. just just in terms of getting Paul Casey involved or you know, or anyone who's a non-member of the European tour, but besides that, um, we talked about the fans, you brought them up 50,000 or so fans a day, even more than that, I think, depending on who you talk to. That's about as much as you'll see at the US Open, so it's not like it's more than a huge event, but the thing that's different about the Ryder Cup is that they're basically sprinkled out over six holes or something like that. You have fewer matches. You cut down the size of a major, which is about 150 players, to 25, uh, 24 actually. So you eliminate essentially 80% of a golf field, and you take the same audience and you constrict it to a tiny part of the course. That's what makes it so absolutely bonkers. Yeah, and it makes it tough on the viewing fan. I mean, if you go to, if you're going to the team event or the team part, you got to be prepared to only see a few holes. You got to be prepared to move ahead in advance to get a good viewing spot and just watch all four groups come through. You're not following a match on foot. And that's nope. the reason why they give all the players, families, and wives, and friends, and anyone or any One Direction band member uh, <laughs> inside the ropes passes because you can't see your um, relative or your son play unless you are inside the ropes for the most part, or you're seeing them on a couple holes. So um, as long as you go as a fan and knowing that, find a good spot that has a view of a Jumbotron that'll help you a lot if you're waiting. Uh, maybe load up on some uh, some beverages and wait wait out on a hill or something as before the groups come through. That also just adds to your uh, desire to make those four groups that come through memorable. Some t- for some people that means yelling something at them, or for most people it just means screaming your lungs off when they do something well. And uh, so that that just again it's just a totally different environment where everyone for the most part you're, you're, there's only two sides. Everyone, for the most part, is rooting for the same thing. It's not like it's yeah. you know Justin Rose versus uh, Jason Day coming down the stretch where their fans may be split 50-50 or people aren't really have a rooting interest. Your rooting interest is evident from the get-go. So it's just a completely different atmosphere. Cheering after missed shots, which some people have a problem with. I don't really have a problem with. But um, it's, it's, it's an environment that's just completely unparalleled. And it doesn't really even exist that much at the President's Cup. No. And, uh, it's only really at the Ryder Cup. Yeah. Now, we'll get to the whole uh, act of cheering for missed shots. But uh, So in your perception of Hazeltine and the layout out there, I think that maybe like the absolute top of the grandstands on the right side of the ninth green might have been a really probably one of the best spots out there. You get to look uh, basically up and down the nine fairway, nine green. You get to eighteenth green uh, is in sight as well, and then you could turn around and see ten. I don't know if there was many other really really good spots out there for fans. Maybe top of sixteen bleachers behind the green. I didn't make my way up there, but if you were up there, you could see sixteen. That's the biggest crowd on any hole by far. I call it the coolest hole setup I've ever seen, mm-hmm. um, as far as how many fans could fit on that hole. And you have a big jumbotron there that you can watch the action from, and then you can watch the action 16 green, and maybe maybe you can see back to 17. I would think you would 
from that top row. Yeah. That's all I can think of as something as a real, I mean, cause that 16th hole was really kind of the place to be this week. So many moments happened on that hole. Uh, my soul left my body when Rory <laughs> made Eagle on that Friday morning, as Kyle Porter told me. Um, so that was, if that was, if I was to tell somebody to go back in time and where to camp, I would say that very top row of the 16th uh, hole bleachers. Yeah. I think that's one aspect about the Ryder cup that it will, you know, it probably gets lost. It's not nearly this, the same as any other majors that the 16th hole is where a lot of a lot of matches, if they're not finished, then they can finish then, or they they reach a pivotal point then, where you've got a par five with water, par three right after it. That that was essentially the important hole at uh, at Hazeltine, and it won't be again because they rerouted them. And anytime Hazeltine hosts again, uh, at least as PGA Championship goes, it won't be the 16th hole. Anyways. Yeah, the rerouting they did was great, though. I it, think was. It, it was. It was. It was a little bit of walking in between holes. Maybe it wasn't that easy on the fans, but um, it was great the way it played out uh, for for on TV and for the actual matches. Yeah, I totally agree. I said that to uh, a buddy yesterday that you know you you're never the the course did not let us down in any right. I thought, um, and in regards to those fans, the fans that were out there that we kind of mingled with, experienced the Ryder Cup with. A few of them were unruly, and that is certainly uh, one layer to the 2016 Ryder Cup. And I don't, I don't know if it was something that could have been rightfully portrayed on TV. Um, you were out there a bunch. You were inside the ropes, and you could hear what people were yelling. How prevalent was it, though? So I didn't think a whole lot of it until I followed Brooks Kepka, Brant Snedeker, Danny Willett, and Martin Keimer on Friday afternoon for ball. And obviously, with the, what we all know what happened with Danny Willett's brother, the comments, uh, the first about five holes of that, I was, I was, it was bad. It was yeah. really bad. I'm, I've got pretty thick skin. Even myself, I could be a bit irreverent. Um, and there were times when I felt like I almost should say something to to people in the stands and the, the harassment that was going on. It's one thing to harass Danny, which I still didn't even think was proper. It's another to harass his family that was inside the ropes. Mm-hmm. And at one point, some guy is just yelling at this woman that I don't think was his mom, but he thought it was his mom. And, you know, saying like, yo, your son's an idiot, blah, blah, blah. And, and the woman's like, it's not even it's not even Danny that said anything. It's his brother. Yeah. And the guy, the guy's like, it's still your son then, isn't it? And everybody laughed. And I just, I just felt horrible. I almost felt like I should go up to that woman and apologize. Like, I got, um, I don't know, Danny didn't deserve that. And uh, to be honest, I mean, the thing that disturbed me the most was just, or bothered me the most, was just the lack of creativity. Yeah. I mean, people just yell the dumbest stuff that's not funny at all. They look around at their friends and think that they're funny. They just want to be heard on TV. Um, so it was just a lot of that that was just so, I mean, I don't know, I, I I hate to be anti-American, but it was just kind of just embarrassing and it just kind of, it honestly made me understand the election a lot better. It honestly (laughs) did. Like, I like, oh, this is how we ended up with Trump versus Hillary. Like it was just, it, it, um, I don't know. There, there was a lot of good that happened out there. There was a lot of, um, a lot of really strong support. And I know that even the European players had said, you know, it's the minority of fans are sticking out. But even in my opinion, and I'm as hardcore American fans, you'll find like the number in that minority is pretty large. As far as golf tournaments I've ever been to, it's definitely the biggest. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's what I was curious to hear is how how this would compare to past Ryder Cups, how it compares to other events when people are saying things. Uh, you know, 
I, I'm curious. We started this podcast by talking about the crazy environment of the first tee. We've got music and we've got cheering and chanting and, and how, uh, how perfectly, uh, you know, ruckus it could be. But I'm curious whether or not we can have our cake and eat it too. Like, can we have that environment without being disrespectful to players involved? I don't know that we can. It's a good point. I've thought about this too. Part of it is this whole promotion of this event as being a completely different event in the, you know, in, as opposed to the rest of the sport. And it does attract a lot of people that wouldn't normally want to go to a golf tournament. I just think that it's kind of gotten out of hand because you know we promote it as this event you can go crazy at. Like Bubba Watson and Ian Poulter are going to pump up the crowd and you can yell like Happy Gilmore. Um, but I mean it, – it's really hard to draw that line between what's acceptable behavior and what's not if you don't know any better. And a lot of people, a lot of people do know better. Like you should not be going up to Rory McIlroy in between holes and yelling him to S a D. Like, come yeah. on, it's just not. It's and so many lines were crossed with so many things that were said. And I talked to Rory a little bit about this, like uh, in on Saturday afternoon. And I was just like, uh, right after that guy yelled something at him, got kicked out. I was like, are the crowds like? Are they worse than they were at Medina? And he's like, yeah, maybe a little bit worse. But he's like, the, the part that just isn't, uh, the part that gets you a little bit is just like when they know so much personal stuff about you. Yeah. That's just when it's kind of not about the sporting event at that point. I mean, he got, he heard a lot about Carolyn Wozniacki, which, mm-hmm. I mean, it's his ex fiance that he broke up with three years ago. Like, <laughs> but it was just like people yelling, Caroline, Caroline. Like, that's not creative. That's not funny. That's not, I don't know. It was such like, I bet the European players not only walked away feeling like harassed. I bet they were just so unimpressed. Like yeah. that wasn't even friendly banter. It just was. It was just annoying and not creative, and it, it took away from the event. I really do think it did take away from the event. Yeah. Well, and didn't we see what uh, European players would do with friend, friendly banter on Thursday of the Ryder Cup when they invite a heckler who is maybe yeah. not maybe not being the most clever, but they invited him onto the green. He makes the putt. They gave him a hundred dollars, and he becomes a Ryder Cup. Uh, cult hero of sorts. I think that, based off of my perception of the players on the team, guys that see on, on the European team, guys that seem pretty good-natured guys, very funny guys in certain aspects. They they know they're on home, uh, on road soil, if you will. I think that they would appreciate good, clever banter. But you can't throw fifty thousand you know people in one spot and expect that to be the outcome. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And I think even Rory had some good responses to the crowd. And, like, uh, they were swinging sweet Car- singing Sweet Caroline at him. And he clapped back at them and sang the lyrics right back at him. And he was even having fun with the crowd after the round and, you know, motioning to start a USA chant after the U.S. had won. And he was very unimpressed with the amount of noise that was going in the crowd, which he was very ac- – it was very accurate. It was, it was strangely quiet. Um, so, I mean, they did have at least a little bit of fun with it, but some of the stuff you can't even like have fun with. And no. Danny Willett was not afforded that opportunity to have any fun with it at all. It was just not, uh, he had no chance from the time he teed it up. Now we'll, we'll kick this topic in a second, but I, I think that there's just a, there's a line between being fun or funny and di- just disrespectful. I think on seven, uh, on Saturday morning was one of the, I think the only time I was walking around there with you. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but Rafa Cabrera Bayo is is with Sergio. They're playing alternate shot against Spieth and Reed, and Bayo's approach on the seventh hole did not get like very very close after Sergio hit a perfect drive, uh, and and fans were chanting "No me gusta, no me gusta," <laughs> which is Spanish for "I don't like," and that's funny. Like that, I I thought that that would not have been 
felt as disrespectful saying suck a D Rory. That's ridiculous and offensive. Yeah, I totally agree. The no me gusta was funny. And, um, oh shoot. Now I'm not, not remembering what another funny one. Oh, somebody yelled at like near the end of the round of Danny Willett's first round. Somebody yelled, Hey Danny, don't worry. I've got a brother. I don't like either. <laughs> like that was, that was funny. Like, come on. Like it, it, it's just the really dumb, like everyone yelling Baba Booey because that's what was in the article. And, yeah. Free hot dogs and stuff like it's just not. I don't know. It's not not funny at all. Not entertaining. But yeah, the no me gusta thing was real. That was really funny. I yeah. think even the players got a laugh out of that. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm pretty sure that Sergio and, and Rafa both kind of meant like waved to the crowd. So that's the kind of stuff that uh, would. I don't know. You appreciate that at the Ryder Cup. Um, but we've gone long enough without talking about Rory, the actual player, um, more so what he was being was being yelled at him. You honestly had the best accessed uh from as far as media goes to rory not only uh rory being himself and playing like a badass but also being the confident come get me badass and he was actually talking to you during his matches which i hope you know that that's that's not normal i know you're, you're, <laughs> you're jumping into the gulf media uh a, a corner of the gulf media you know that's not normal right I I assumed it wasn't, especially for me, it's really not normal. I'm not like a real media person or writer. I'm just like a golf fan who, with some buddies, started a website to talk about golf. And it somehow has let me get inside the ropes at at the biggest event in golf. So for me, it really is like living the golf fan's dream to just be able to walk inside. I mean, for... Uh, guys that have done it for a long time, it's work for them. And I know that they still appreciate an event like this and whatnot. But again, for me, this was the first time doing anything like this. So it was just a shocking experience. And um, I had briefly, like, had, uh, I got to go inside the ropes at the Memorial this year. Yeah. And had some fun interactions with the, I followed Rory, JT, and Spieth, um, who I've, I've all, like, you know, at least interacted with in some way on Twitter. And uh, like Justin, that back then, Justin Thomas pulled out a driver and tried to drive the 14th green. (laughs) And like he looked over, like they both looked over at me and like laughed about it. And I kind of motioned to him. I was like, are you are you doing this for me? He was going (laughs) to miss the cut by a mile. And he just nods at me like, yeah. And he rips a drive, goes way left into the crowd. And Rory's cracking up. And Rory just turns to me and is like, oh, I can't wait to see the tweet about that shot. And that was the extent of my relationship with Rory in person at like to date. Oh, wow. And uh, so Saturday morning, he like recognizes me, I guess, inside the ropes in between holes three and four and just like kind of gives me a head nod and like makes a motion about uh, the flop shot that Phil just hit. And we're kind of like too far apart to say anything. So I just like make some like weird gestures back at him. I don't even know what I was doing. <laughs> Porter was making fun of me for that because I didn't I, I couldn't say anything. I just had to communicate physically. But um so, I mean, it was, I made it very clear uh, leading up to the Ryder Cup that I wanted to see Kepka and, and uh, Dustin Johnson paired together. Yeah. I thought that would have been a perfect pairing. It didn't happen for the first three sessions, and it finally did for Saturday afternoon four ball. Sure enough, they go up against Rory and Peters, the Europeans' hottest team. And I walked the first eight holes with that group, um, and I think uh, Rory and Peters were seven under through, or, yeah, let's see, six under through those first eight holes. And... I go back to 9T, and I'm, I sit on a bench that's kind of far away from the tee box, maybe 30 feet away, 25 feet, and Rory and Peters tee off, and Rory just comes over and plops down on the bench next to me. And, I mean, I'm trying to play. I'm playing it cool. Like, yeah, okay, this, this is cool. This totally happens. And then he points at DJ and Kepka, and he's three up on them at this point. 
and rubs it in my face that this is the pairing I wanted, points at the two of them and says, well, you got your wish, and just kind of looks at me with a little <laughs> smirk on his face, like, I'm smoking these guys. You wanted this pairing, and I'm going to rub it in your face during the middle of the Ryder Cup. Yeah. I mean, it was it was hilarious. I loved every second of it. I was like, consider dropping the U.S. right then and there and starting rooting for <laughs> Europe because it was so hilarious to me. It was such a uh, – to watch your Twitter feed at various points uh, inside the ropes, getting that kind of – interaction i don't know it was it was the the best in my eyes is the best way of seeing that sometimes rory doesn't have to play the uh, the pc the pc line he doesn't he kind of he can kind of give no f's for a while to use a uh, a worse term than i should the guy <laughs> this summer i mean this summer we saw rory say that stuff uh, at the british open about how you know, I didn't, I didn't get into golf to grow the game, that kind of stuff. And he kind of backed himself up at various points. And then, you know, he kind of, uh, he kind of faded at Baltusrol and was kind of like, yeah, it just wasn't my, you know, I think that Rory, he's, he's being experimental a little bit with how, uh, I don't know if maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being way too, uh, I don't know, looking way too far into this, but I love what Rory's doing. He's he's arguably the best talent in the world at golf, and I think that he's able to kind of show a lighter side to him by doing things like this, or show a different side to him than than you than you get in press conferences than the typical media gets. And I love it. I I really love it. And I hope more people take note of the things that Rory uh, Rory seems more aware than I think other people give him credit for. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've, I shared that story. Obviously, I think it was I think it was a really noteworthy thing that happened, not just because it happened to me. Like if it happened to anyone else I knew, I just would think that's cool. I think it's really cool that he would interact with somebody that uh, he barely knows. And it's basically just somebody from Twitter that and he will go right up to him in the middle of the Ryder Cup and make a joke with him. Like and I've had a lot of people message me being like, that is that's an incredible story. Like Rory just became one of my favorite players. So like a lot of the things he did this week were. I don't know. I found it maybe because I already had a man crush on him, but I like everything that he did, like antagonizing the crowd and all that was like the opposite feeling I get when Poulter does it. Like I didn't, I felt like it was, it was macho and it was like, look at me, I'm the best player out here. And it was accurate. Um, but I just took it as such a release. Like it was just such a nice thing to see a cool thing to see somebody be that confident in their game on a home soil and not worry about what the crowd's reaction to it is. And I think that just kind of adds to uh, most people. Kyle Porter made the really good point. Like if you liked Rory leading up into this, you like him even more now. If you disliked him, you probably dislike him more. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand that second half, but I do recognize that it does exist. But I think he earned a lot more fans this week than he did than he lost. And I just think it's it's and it's not just like my story and and the way he acted. Like you know. He's, you know, you know, I can't hear you, I can't hear you to the crowd, and then Reed finger wags at him, and Rory laughs about it, comes up and gives him a fist pound. And, like, after the round, he went up and congratulated all the U.S. players, and he was there when they were celebrating. And, you know, he came up to J.B. Holmes, like, hey, where's the champagne, guys? Like, I know it hasn't been a while since you've won one of these, but why aren't you <laughs> celebrating? And, again, I don't know. Everything he, everything he did this week was just, I thought, uh, and I told him this, uh, uh, he came up, <laughs> it's funny, 
I, I'm a huge, uh, obviously a huge American golf fan. I've been waiting for this moment for them to win the cup. And uh, the moment the U.S. clinched the cup, like uh, a buddy of ours looked over and he's like, I saw you and you were in Rory's arms. Like I was, he came up and gave me a hug after the round <laughs> and just like said, hey, it's good to see you out here. And he, but he just gave me such a hard time. Like, like you're here, you are waiting for this moment and you're in, in, in the enemy's arms yeah. as, as we won the cup. But I mean, he rec- like, he just was, he, he was such a good sport after the, after the end of it and gave really good answers in his press conference. And um, yeah, I always, always had strong feelings for Rory, but man, now it's reaching dangerous levels. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking about maybe you six months ago in early April, uh, and you, you have this dream about, about the Ryder Cup being won. Uh, and you jumping into Rory's arms, <laughs> you must have thought, "Wow, that that's pretty crazy." And then it happened. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't have worked out better. I would, I would say the U.S. smoked him, and I got to embrace Rory on the 18th green. <laughs> <laughs> Another person you embraced. I saw. I didn't realize this during the week, but I just saw today going through your Twitter feed. Uh, you took a selfie with Brooks Kepka's father. He, he he took a selfie. I went up. At, he follows me on Twitter, and I've always been a very very uh, pro Kepka guy. And he's taken notice of that. And uh, and so I I saw him inside the ropes, and uh, I just went up and introduced myself. And he was he was very very ecstatic to meet a, meet a Kepka fan because I've long been advocating for Kepka. I thought he should have been on the Presidents Cup team last year. I think he gets completely disrespected by the TV networks. And uh, he had some, just had some nice things to say, like, thank you for supporting my son and whatnot. Told me some great stories. And then uh, he said, yeah, let's get a selfie real quick. I was like, oh, okay. And sure enough, he tweeted it. So it was, it was pretty funny to me. Yeah, that's cool. Um, now, as far as your time in the ropes when I was around you, I, we kind of tripped on a pretty interesting thing. Uh, that would be with Tiger Woods. I, now, before we get really deep into it, walking with Tiger – it was probably one of my favorite scenes from the entire week there because we're watching Tiger watch golfers play golf. And that is just something that we've never seen before. Tiger had never been an assistant captain anywhere. We never really got to see Tiger and his perception of the game as far as strategy goes without actually having him play it. Or And, you know, for the past couple of years, him playing it has been pretty dreadful. So to, to actually follow along follow him, follow golfers. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, and we did this on Saturday morning. It was, as I said earlier, Reed and Spieth, alternate shot versus Cabrera Bayo and Sergio. Now, first things first, I love that Tiger showed up. It was the first time he was following Spieth and Reed uh, all week. And uh, it happens that they're playing Sergio Garcia. Yep. Um, I, think, uh, I think I heard you make the point, was it your podcast with Jeff? About that being the first uh, the first time that they did that, the first time that we saw him was just with Sergio looming. Uh, Brendan Porath had a really good tweet about uh, you know he had the Lee Westwood's quote of you know having Tiger around might be detrimental to the team or whatnot, and then it was a screenshot of Lee Westwood going zero and three, yeah, and then a, a shot of Tiger just taking a sip of coffee on the range, <laughs> like it was too perfect, like <laughs> that's none of my business. Um, I thought, you know, I thought there was a risk of like being too many egos around in that U.S. team to start the week, and ended up working like fantastically. And um, Tiger kind of putting his foot down and saying, "You're sending Spieth and Reed back out Saturday afternoon" was a huge momentum saver. Uh, what Reed did Saturday afternoon, I think, kind of paved the way for them to kind of march their way to victory. 
Um, so by all means, I think Tiger's impact was a very positive one. Um, I think it brought more people, honestly, probably brought more people out to the tournament. Um, I don't know if I, they, I'm assuming they sold out of tickets, so maybe I'm wrong in saying that. Yeah. But it brought a little extra, extra layer of excitement just for people to be able to see Tiger. And I mean, I kind of make fun of it, the way people overreact to Tiger. And then I was there on Thursday afternoon and Kucher was hitting balls in the range and he walked out and watched Kucher hit balls and I didn't want to leave. Like he was just standing there and I couldn't leave. Uh, it just kind of speaks to how much pull he still has in the game. So uh, it was cool to just see him out there walking the fairways and being unfazed by anything the crowd says and you know checking his phone and uh, just having random conversations with guys. It just makes him feel so incredibly human when at times we just kind of forget that he is just a person. Yeah, I he he is he was incredibly locked in, and not that I guess we would expect anything less from the, one of the more mentally savvy players to ever play golf. But this is something that I don't think you were around for, and it's a little bit embarrassing for me. But I don't really I don't really care at this point. So we're on the eighth. Uh, you and maybe you and, and Kevin Van Valkenburg had left my uh, had left Spieth and Reed that morning, so they hit they hit tee shots on the eighth. It's a par three, and I'm up by the green, and I stand maybe four feet away from Nota Begay, who's up with his back against um, against the grandstand, and uh, Tiger rolls up and parks it right between Nota and I. So essentially, in line, it's Zach, Tiger, Nota Begay, and then Darius Rucker. Uh, who was also there. And I'm just like, well, this is this is not normal. And I'll just kind of like listen in on what, what they're saying. They weren't really talking loud enough for me to hear them. But then I was like, you know what, screw it. Get up enough courage to just say, what up, Tiger? Just say what up and see how he reacts. If he's, his Spieth and Reed were like two up, three up at the time, his pod members are basically playing really well. And I say, Tiger, as he kind of like walks by me, he doesn't, doesn't do anything. I said, Tiger kind of like turned my head to him he did nothing i said tiger <laughs> and he, fi- <laughs> he finally turns to me he says hey look at that tiger smile and i said are you having fun and he said yeah are you and i said yeah and that was it and like N- noda like tapped him and he kind of turned to noda so that was honestly it but it felt like the guy uh though he normally is probably pretty reserved towards anyone in a media bib it just felt like he couldn't care about anything besides what was happening on the green and uh, I don't know, I think, not that that's worth being commended for, but it was just very interesting to see him so, so locked in while he wasn't even playing. That's, I'm honestly surprised that he, like, like acknowledged you. I mean, I feel like you could yell Tiger in his ear and he wouldn't turn. Like, I've never <laughs> seen him even remotely acknowledge anyone, uh, you know, that yells him from the stands. But I think that is cool. I didn't hear that story, actually. I mean. I, first of all, I respect you for even having the balls to talk to him because I would have just I would have froze and I did stand next to him and I completely froze and had nothing to say to him. But um, no, that is very cool that he replied to you. Yeah. I, it did look it did seem like he was having fun out there. It seemed like it was a role he's going to really embrace for several years to come. Yeah, as it was announced today, uh, 2017 Presidents Cup, Steve Stricker is the captain and announced Freddie Couples, Davis Love, and Tiger Woods as his assistant captain. So we'll see Tiger in a similar similar role actually not far from uh, the New York office where I am right now. But anyways, Tiger as assistant captain, we tripped upon him and Hunter Mahan, which is the thing, that's how I introduced this story to everyone that I've told it. And they always give me that look like, Hunter Mahan? Why was he there? Why was he there? He's the 272nd ranked golfer in the world right now. Oh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I looked that up a couple days ago. Um, so you and I and Kevin Van Valkenburg, ESPN golf writer, were on the fifth hole. We're inside the ropes, and I remember walking past Hunter, 
with you, and I was like, oh, that's Hunter Mahan. <laughs> and we were both going, okay, that's odd. Kept walking, and uh, Reed had overcooked his drive a little, or his tee shot left. Speed's kind of analyzing it, and uh, Tiger basically stops right in front of us. And so we're sitting, and you can interrupt me if this at any point gets uh, inaccurate, because my <laughs> memories is probably as good as yours, but... Um, we stopped there and Tigers, we're just watching Tiger watch golf and Hunter Mahan comes up out of nowhere for one, wearing a media bib, but two, uh, it surprises Tiger and Tiger's like, Hey, uh, what is up? I <laughs> uh, guess what's up Hunter. And, uh, I am for one, I'm curious what he would have reacted if we kind of jumped up behind him like Hunter did. And two, Hunter's just like, Hey man, glad to see you back at the Safeway. How's this whole thing going? You look thin. You look skinny, actually. Like, what's going on? Tiger's, like, not entertaining, really, any of the the non-Ryder Cup talk, which I thought was fascinating. Um, but then they start, they just start chit-chatting, and it's you and me and Kevin eavesdropping. It's, yeah, uh, everyone else cleared out. So there's like, there's, like, 15 to 20 people standing around this spot because we kind of had to um, stand behind this spot to where Spieth was hitting his ball. Spieth hits his ball. Everyone else leaves. And we are like an uncomfortably far distance from the ropes. Like we're supposed to be within arm's length of the ropes. Nobody enforces that. We are 20 to 30 feet away from the ropes, almost in the fairway, just standing next to Mayhan and Tiger. So picture it like when there was a crowd around, it looked somewhat normal. Somebody needed to stand near those guys. Yeah. But everyone else left. There's three of us just standing like we could reach out and touch him probably if we wanted to. Yeah. It was so obvious what we were doing, but they didn't seem to care. Yeah, it was it was beautiful, and I felt like at first I looked at you, and you kind of gave me those wide eyes, and I'm like, well, we should probably you know leave. And then I looked at Kevin, and he wasn't budging. He was standing there pat, and I'm like, all right, well, if he's going to do it, we might as well. Um, but the conversation they had was very fascinating, and I think you and I only briefly discussed it. They they started talking about mud balls out on the course, <laughs> which was only like. Not that it was rumored, it was only a minor issue or something that was briefly discussed on Friday. And so Tiger's talking about how varying spins off the tee and various various shot shapes are, are kicking up mud or not kicking up mud. Do you remember what he was saying? Yeah, he said something like, "When you, it's when you turn the ball over, it doesn't backspin and it doesn't catch up the mud. But when you're cutting it or when you're spinning it off the tee, that's when it, you get mud balls. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe, that, maybe that's kind of good insight, but it's not when you turn one over or when you hit a draw, it doesn't mean the ball is like has overspin on it. Yeah. <laughs> like overspin on a ball means you topped it and it's going straight into the ground. Even when you hit a draw, it still has backspin. Granted, it, it does have less spin typically, but uh, I just found that very interesting that he thought he could control whether or not his <laughs> ball got mud on it by the shot shape off the tee. And I was like, Either this guy has this control of the golf ball that I never fully understood until now, or he's kind of just made this up and is going with it. So I can't prove him wrong, but I was no. listening to it and being like, I wasn't buying it. Were you? No, no. And I was just like, <laughs> well, I should really start to hit a draw now if I'm ever playing any like waterlogged courses. That's that's the science right there. Tiger Woods has has stumped us all. Uh, but that you know that conversation was just fascinating because, well, prior to that, Patrick Reed had walked over 
to Hunter Mayhead and said, like, what the hell are you doing here? That was <laughs> Mid-round, funny. yeah. He's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I bet Hunter, like, though he felt out of place enough wearing a media bib to have the players actually walk over and ask what the hell you're doing here, that must have made him feel great. Yeah, I mean, still, I, I, I don't – he didn't have, like, any wires or anything. He wasn't actually working any media. I have no idea what he was doing there, but – it's easy to forget he actually played on the last Ryder Cup team. It it's seems like it was so long crazy. ago. But. <laughs> crazy to think that. Uh, so then the, their conversation continues, though, and they're talking about, like, Thomas Peters' ball flight and talking about, uh, like, what what uh, equi- like what like equipment company sponsors Peters. And I don't know about you, but it was just, like, that was – well, and also for you, they're having this conversation – and we're basically peering over Tiger's shoulder, and Patrick Reed hits a like some 15-foot birdie putt, and it goes in. Like I felt for you and your various PGA Tour allegiances that that was going to be your peak, that that was going <laughs> that was going to be your moment, and it obviously was only one of a few moments you had that whole week. Yeah, to me, so I didn't find their conversation necessarily their conversation to be all that interesting, but I just always wanted to know, like when you're outside the ropes and you're watching guys talk. I just always want to know what they're talking about. I never, I knew it wasn't like anything groundbreaking. They talk about other sports and normal human conversations, but I just always said to myself, "Like I'd love to hear what they're what they're talking about," and to stand right next to them and hear what they're talking about was fascinating on its own. Um, like I said, it wasn't like anything necessarily that groundbreaking, but it was just fun to see two guys interacting, talking about golf, talking about mud balls, and um, yeah, I think uh, I, I, I wish I was could have like taken notes on the things that were said because I really don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, it was nothing that that shocking or vulgar or anything like that. But yeah. it was just funny that they, I, if I was them, I would have like started to walk away from us a little bit. Like, it's, who are these guys just clearly <laughs> eavesdropping on our conversation? Yeah. Uh, but they didn't seem to care. There's basically probably a, I don't know, maybe a forty foot circle around us, uh, and. The only people inside of it were us three and Hunter Mayhan and Tiger Woods, and we happened to, like you said, we could probably have touched them if we if we wanted to. A um, couple more things. One, uh, where where were you during the champagne um, barrage? I was down below the big platform, so I didn't had hadn't start walking over the big stair platform, and I really wish I would have at that point. But I was down below when it happened. Were you getting sprayed? I was not. I was off to the side a little bit, so I, I didn't catch any flack. Okay, what what was that like? Because I mean, you see the the camera view looking down at the people, and I and maybe a camera view coming up, but like, were those people just like opening their mouths? I I guess I kind of was a little bit too busy to to realize what was happening. I just again, I go back to I was just surprised at how um, I don't want to say lack of energy, but it felt like, and I think part of the reason like Rory was kind of egging the crowd on, like why aren't you cheering more? Is like they spent all their energy harassing the European team. And then when the team won the cup, it was just oddly silent. And the 18th green doesn't really suit up, fit that well for like a big celebration or that area was kind of a tricky spot to do it. But the whole thing just felt kind of forced and it felt like they had won four in a row. And this was the fourth more than it was like breaking this losing streak and signaling this new era of Ryder cup play. Um, so to me, it was just, a, I don't want to, I don't know if disappointing is the right word, but I just expected more out of the end of round celebration, yeah. uh, especially considering how much, you know, went into this process and it came to life when Phil got up there and started pouring champagne in Speed's mouth. And <laughs> I'm sure if I was up top there, uh, Kyle Porter and Alex Myers were, um, 
I think it would have been a lot, probably a lot more entertaining than it was down below. But yeah, um, I've seen pictures of like, you know, Zinger spraying champagne and Europeans doing it on the road. And it looks like a crazy celebration. I'm sure it got a little wilder later, but yeah. uh, it was a little bit lacking on there from what I saw. Now, speaking of a little bit wilder later, there's a there's probably a two, maybe two and a half hour gap. That might be that might be generous uh, between the final putt being made and the actual Ryder Cup press conference because there's a big ceremony and obviously the champagne barrage, as I said earlier. So during that two and a half or so hour time, a couple of U.S. players got a little bit tipsy and maybe a little bit toasted. Uh, and we saw that in the press conference. Were you in the press conference afterward? I was. Okay. And, uh, it was How beautiful I was, was that? I'm unimpressed with uh, <laughs> Dustin Dustin Johnson's ability to hold his alcohol. I mean, it was, they were gone for a low out, but they weren't gone that long. And he came back and could barely form a sentence. Like, I'm sure his agent was like, get this guy off the stage right now. I, yeah. it, it looked like... He, his eyes had rolled out of his head at this point. He told a story that was really weird, and uh, he was he was clearly having a good time, and he was the most most intoxicated of any of the twelve guys. I'd say definitely at least the most visually intoxicated and audibly. The guy was uh, he popped champagne bottle, and the cork flew into the media. He yelled four four left, and it was just it was you know it was good spirited and it was hilarious. But I just it made me want to party with Dustin. Yeah, I think we've all kind of wanted, deep down, wanted to see what party with Dustin's like, and that we at least got to see a little preview of it. Um, but it was just, I don't know, it was really interesting. I mean, Reed came in that press conference and like literally could not get the smile off his no. face, and it was like not like a grinning smile, just like a smug smirk. Like I know what I just did, and this smile is not going to leave my body for several months. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was cool. It was very cool, uh, and it all led to an after party where. Um, Tiger Woods took a picture with Polina Gretzky, and that became the headline of the after party. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, for... <laughs> I, I was—I gotta say—I was really impressed with the Europeans press, press conference after. Like, okay, they ca- they came in uh, first; they were in first, and it didn't seem like they had just lost the Ryder Cup. They weren't down at all. They were joking with each other, making jokes about each other's height, making jokes about Poulter always being on Twitter. Like a really nice banter between them. Came in, gave really honest, thoughtful answers to the press conference, and. Um, it just, I, I saw that and I was kind of like, okay, I get how this team wins a lot. Like yeah. if the U S would have lost, um, first of all, it just would have been a very different, very different pressure situation between those two teams. But if the U S would have lost that thing would have been like a funeral in there. It would have been Phil just getting roasted. And, um, it was complete opposite. I mean, they were all at full support of Taryn Clark and, um, and they, you know, they were talking about the fans, but even then, like, they would chime in and say, you know, 99.5% are good fans. And they complimented the U.S. players on, like, chiming in and telling the crowd to shut up and stuff. Um, so I just, I don't know. I, that was really noteworthy to me. I looked at that and just, I thought about, like, everything we'd been through for, through the week, like all the crowd issues and the, the, yeah. the harassment, and just realized that I had no hate at all for anyone on that stage. As badly as I wanted the U.S. to to win, and granted it helps that Poulter wasn't playing, but, like, I just had no hate for those guys. I was like, these guys are really cool. I think the American players have the utmost respect for those guys, and they all really get along for the most part. And that's what made this event so cool is they can just go go at each other's throats and afterward laugh about it. I mean, Rory was in the team's uh, U.S. celebration, I'm pretty sure, at some point. 
Um, and like, I don't know, it just, it is such a cool sporting event to see those guys care about it that much. Then when it's over, you know, not act like it's the end of the world when they lost it and still be really cool with each other and really be, be really good sportsmen. Yeah. Now from that press conference, last question I'll ask you though, is for your opinion on the setup, because Justin Rose was prompt to discuss the setup and how difficult or how easy it was. It, in my opinion, I think Justin Rose has a decent point based on, you know, he was a little bit harsh and called it a pro-am like feel. Now, if you look, if you think back to the, uh, the setup in the pins maybe on, on Sunday and how the entire week, the rough was cut down very, very, very short. I mean, if you think back to Hazeltine in 09, that course is protected when you have longer rough. And if it's not that, that's really essentially up to the trees and any of the water hazards. I, the, I mean, you're going to have an easier setup probably at most Ryder Cups. But do you think it was too easy? I don't think it was too easy at all. Um, it was a really long golf course. So there's only one par five that was a true like green light special, and that yeah. was 16. Even that is very protected by water and a real good risk-reward shot. Um I don't know. I'm not interested, first of all, with this intense match play, especially when you get out in four ball. Like, if you can throw really tucked, tough pins in there, you're going to be out there all afternoon. Um, That's true. And, and I don't know. Like, these guys, yeah, it just, it's a much more fun format when these guys are putting for birdies. And it wasn't like gimme birdies. It wasn't easy birdies. Rose, I think, made two birdies the, all day. Um, I don't think it needs to be, like, a super challenging uh, set up or re- it doesn't make that doesn't make match play any more fun in my eyes and um, it's the same setup for both it, I don't know it was incredibly fair there was nothing gimmicky or unfair about it so for somebody to complain about the setup um, I feel like players have a, a fair chance to complain when things are when variables are added like the yeah. greens at Chambers Bay I thought very fair criticism like it's just bad luck sometimes if your ball's rolling around on broccoli whether or not it goes in the hole. There was no like element of luck introduced at all. Okay. I don't think the U.S. like the the PGA of America, whoever set up the golf course, was secretive or tricky about it. Anyways, I think they knew they were going to cut the rough down. Uh, I don't think that necessarily benefited one team or the other. No. Um, I don't know. I I don't see where he's coming from. I'd be. I was. I'm not this much of a golf nerd, but I wanted to look back at uh, where the pins were at Medina on Sunday for their huge comeback and see. Hmm. Justin Rose didn't have a problem when they put the pins in the middle of the green at Medina. Um, thinking back to just like 17, 16, and 18 of that day, I know they were in the middle of the green on those holes. Um, didn't have anything to say about it then. So yeah. it was yeah. a bit of sour grapes from somebody that I, w- I wouldn't expect that from Rose. I yeah, really wouldn't. That's true. Uh, one thing, though, that I ended up looking up prior to the Ryder Cup is just how many birdies were made at the course because birdies win holes and uh, holes win matches and matches win the Ryder Cup. Uh, Zach Johnson finishes T10 at the 2009 Hazeltine PGA. He makes 10 birdies the entire week. And as everybody knows, Phil Mickelson made 10 birdies on Sunday. So as, as, as much as um, Rose was complaining, there's, there's a little bit that you could say uh, in his favor that he was a bit right. But at the end, end of the day, birdies are what is exciting about the Ryder Cup. And it's not over par, under par, kind of, uh, not, not that kind of an event. Yeah, and I get it. I mean, I guess he's he's more of a. I mean, it's a U.S. Open winner. He, I guess, plays better at courses that are tougher, and he likes the challenge better. Um, and it does kind of if you set it up pretty easy, it does kind of neutralize things a bit. Um, but I thought the U.S. had a much stronger team, so setting it up easier 
<coughs> excuse me, okay. or making things neutralizing, I don't think was necessarily a benefit to the American team. Yeah. Um, so I, for him to say that, you know, if, if he's going to say that, if I was him, I would have prefaced it much stronger with, I don't think this had an impact on the outcome. I just would have liked to have seen this challenge different, or so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he didn't. So it was uh, a little disappointing, but I mean, it's, it's kind of whatever. I mean, Rory even hinted at the rough, too. It was a little disappointed they didn't grow the rough out. But, I mean, I don't know. I did not see that as being a deciding factor. No, in the no, sure. definitely not. We can leave it at that. Uh, thanks to Chris for joining me. Hope to see him at future Ryder Cups. The next one will be in Paris in 2018, and we will have plenty of podcasts between now and then. In the meantime, you should press subscribe so you can listen to every single one of them. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock. Sean Zock.